You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. But sport is different. A film can be watched again and again. Music can be listened to again and again. The key difference is that the creative moment, the key creative moment happens live in sport, whereas it doesn't with film and with music. This is my recommendation, something I've been promoting for a few years, which is that the biggest federations have reached the size where they need to be broken up into a regulator, a development arm, competitions arm. I would say to them, so which is the best marketed league in the world? And they would always say, ah, definitely the English Premier League. I'd say, right, okay, then how many people work in their marketing department? And what's that? What's their budget, do you think? At the time, I think it was like three or four people, maybe, with maybe a million marketing budget. So are they marketing the Premier League around the world? Of course not. It's a broadcast. Sky's got got a billion-pound marketing budget. There's a Billy Bragg song in there somewhere, but... For the life of me, I can't find it. Anyway, Richard Clark here. Um, ooh. Uh, terrible guitarist, hopefully slightly better podcaster. And this time, my guest on Sports Content Strategy is Alex Phillips, who has worked for UEFA, FIFA, and the AFC. And in the article that prompted this podcast, was described as the most influential football executive you've never heard of. Certainly he's a very bright man with regard to all things governance and the way the game should be run, really. Um, So this is an interesting conversation that talks about content, governance, but quite a lot of other things as well. Alex, just a very clever guy with lots to say and someone who should be listened to. Um, And perhaps without the uh, look-at-me attitude of other uh, senior administrators within the sport as well. So... I like this chat. I like this chat, and I'm a big fan of Alex and, and what he does and the way he does it as well. As I say, Sports Content Strategy is the podcast. My name is Richard Clark. You can find me at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Um, I'm a consultant, um, I'm a, a, a podcaster, I'm a content creator, I'm a journalist, I'm a terrible guitarist. But, you know, let's gloss over that last one. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by Sports Tech Match, so check out the advert in the middle of the podcast and also the show notes as well. There's going to be links to Alex as well and some of the articles that prompted this podcast. Um, otherwise, uh, should we just get into it? Should we get into it? Let's just get into it. Let's talk governance. Let's talk how the game should be run. Let's talk changing the game for the positive in the 21st century. And... Uh, Let's talk about it with this man. So my name's Alex Phillips. I've been working in football for about 20, 25 years. I was born in Paris and my mum and dad, who were both English, were working there at the time, but they moved back when I was a toddler. They bought a house and the house happened to be next to a football stadium. We, in fact, it was so close we could see half the pitch from the roof of our house. It just so happens this was, by luck, the best football club in London, if not England and the world. And so I grew up listening to 50,000 men screaming every other week. When I was really young, I thought it was a spaceship taking off when a goal was scored. The sound was so incredible. 
And uh, so I grew up with football, wanting to be a footballer, couldn't be a footballer like most kids, <clears throat> despite running around Highbury Fields every weekend. So went to work in the city like everybody else, uh, a lot of people in, in, in the southeast, in, in London. And uh, I studied languages, French and Spanish, and that was my way to get into football um, because I went to join Deloitte and they needed somebody who could read the accounts. This was in the late 90s read financial statements of the big clubs around Europe um, because they had realized that people were more interested in Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, AC Milan than in, with all respect, Accrington Stanley <clears throat> and so on. So that was my way in, having been an English language native speaker with foreign languages. I got I set up the Deloitte Rich List. That was one of my first jobs. Another first job was looking at the Media Partners Breakaway Super League project uh, 98. Um, so it was fascinating work. Four years I spent at Deloitte's work, not just football, but all sorts of different sports bodies, agencies, broadcasters, um, clubs, leagues, federations, and so on. Then from there, I saw a job advertised on the UEFA website. Didn't have any special plug or connection to get in there. Applied for the job, got the job, spent 17 years at UEFA in all sorts of different roles, working with professional football, head of the executive office, which is the general secretary's office, head of strategic affairs, working with confederations, other federations around the world, and ended up as head of governance and compliance for the last couple of years. I left that two years ago. Since then, I've been an independent consultant. My main client at the moment is FIFA. I'm the administrator to the World Football Remission Fund, which is $200 million that the US government got back from those who had stolen it from football in the FIFA, uh, FIFA gate, if you like, um, scandal six years ago. And that money now has to be spent, goes back to the victims, because FIFA, CONMEBOL, and CONCACAF, the confederations in the Americas, they are considered as the victims of these crimes. So they get the money back, but they have to use it in a very strict way to benefit women's football, youth football, community projects. Um, and so on. So that's so I'm administrating that fund uh, together with FIFA, CONCACAF and Commobol at the moment. And I have one or two other clients as well working on interesting pro projects in Asia and, uh, and elsewhere. So that's me. Sorry for the long introduction. Wow, that's a hell of a CV in football. <laughs> Thanks for speaking to me, Alex. So this chat was initiated, I suppose, because of a series of articles you were involved in um, on the back of the Super League or the, the proposed Super League that fell apart relatively quickly. Now, you wrote those at, at the time, very strident views you had. In the period of time since Super League collapsed and now, have your feelings evolved? Have they changed? Just, just give us a, an understanding of, of where you are, are now with regard to Super League, with governance, with finance, just, just briefly. So I think the biggest change looking at it Sort of from a macro point of view, is that the situation has fragmented. So for 10 years before, uh, before last year, uh, we had stability in, because there was an arrangement between the clubs and UEFA, basically. And all of the clubs were in the European Club Association, Big 3, Big 12, whatever you, however you want to classify them, they were all in. And the previously breakaway group the g14 was closed down <clears throat> so this was so that this is probably was 2000 
2008, this happened, 2007, 2008. So actually it's just more than 10 years. So we, we basically had a period of stability where clubs received more money for the release of their players for the Euros and the World Cup finals. Uh, there were no breakaway threats, really. Uh, of course, there's always some clubs in the background who, who are separatist and will always want to be separate and break away. But the question is always how much groundswell of support can they get amongst the other clubs to take that huge leap and take the big risk of breaking away from the existing structures. So now we've got a very fragmented situation. The European Club Association obviously has, uh, has a new chairman because uh, they don't have a president, they have a chair, uh, who's based in Paris. Decisions are taken from Paris, as I understand it. Uh, not Neon, where I am now, which is where UEFA is, where ECA is, where the European leagues are. Um, so you have the big clubs, the very big clubs, out of the tent. Uh, the ECA is very close to the UEFA. Uh, but this means you've got a, a fragmented, conflictual situation. Uh, until that's resolved and that some way can be found to bring those biggest clubs back into the fold, then there's going to be tension and uh, conflict. And uh, you cannot have a club association if you haven't got Real Madrid, Barcelona <clears throat> and uh, Juventus in it. I don't think because they're three of the, the biggest uh, clubs in football history. So that's the situation as I see it. The, the concept they tried to to kind of relaunch it, re, but you know, you continuously making the same mistake as in the first place. So go to Brussels to try and lobby for it. Who do you send? Some bankers and lawyers. So this, you know, it doesn't, it just missed the point, basically. <laughs> then they missed it again. You know, you can't just patch up the bits that, uh, that people didn't like, like promote no, no qualification, permanent members. You can't just patch those up and expect people to jump back on board. Uh, I think UEFA are always tweaking and amending the club competitions to suit the interests of the big clubs. Biggest shame over the past year is probably that UEFA didn't take the opportunity that, of the leverage that they've got, that they've had this past 12 months to get rid of this idea of having clubs qualified based on their historical coefficient. So this means that even if you don't qualify, if you've got a big history, you, you may be able to get into the Champions League. And that is something that was a red line, you know, that would never be crossed in, in UEFA in the past. I mean, that would never even make it onto the agenda of a club competitions committee, that kind of concept. But that just shows how far we've gone uh, in the interests of those, those biggest clubs. It's not just their interest, it's broadcasters as well and others. That, that have an interest to have Juventus and not Atalanta in uh, the Champions League, even if Atalanta finish higher in the table, uh, for example. <clears throat> so that's brief, well, it's not briefly, but that's a, uh, <laughs> a, a brief tour of the uh, situation as I see it over the past, past few months. And you were very strong about the role of a governance body, a regulating body rather, a competition organiser or a monetising innovative body, they have to be separate. And too often, you've seen this across sport, but certainly in an organisation an organization like UEFA, not, not that they were the bad guys in the Super League, but I suppose it's the clash between a regulatory function and an innovative 
commercialization function because as, as you said there are splits within what football clubs want some want to maximize their money and some want to sort of grow roots for future success whereas others have that sort of baked into their history yeah so the problem with governance in football is that people have always tried to bring in governance reforms from the private sector or the public sector uh, so for example independent directors bring in that, that, that that's what happens on the stock exchange for companies so let's apply that to football but that is really sticking plaster I mean that's something that may help slightly but it doesn't address the core problems because the core problems come from the fact that you have the same people in charge of conflicting tasks so you to police properly rules, regulations like financial fair play, for example, uh, you may kick out the clubs, the biggest clubs that are generating your revenues. So you have a conflict of interest. Why would you kick out one of those big clubs who are the stars of the show for the broadcasters and the fans uh, and everybody else? But that's what you have to do if you're a regulator. So there is an inherent conflict until the uh, functions are separated. And this is, this is my recommendation, something I've been promoting for a few years, which is that the biggest federations have reached the size where they need to be broken up into the regulator, uh, development arm, competitions arm, uh, and maybe one or two others. Uh, this is what happened to countries. So the correct governance analogy is not a stock exchange listed company, it's an absolute monarchy. Uh, so where you've basically got one guy at the top who decides everything. Uh, and that's what happens at the IOC and, and uh, a lot of the big international federations. So this is unhealthy, leads to problems because that individual has a conflict of interest. They may be tempted to favour this club or that club or this federation or that federation uh, for a certain particular subject. Whereas in practice, they shouldn't have the power to do that. It should be... In the, on the, the regulatory side, <clears throat> it should be completely separate. Um, so this is this is somehow uh, what I would recommend for the future. And then the regulators can re police the rules without any political pressure on them. In the same way that uh, staffers in the, the federations, they need to be um, protected from politicians interfering in administrative decisions. Uh, and that's another problem in international federations where all the power is centralized in a politician, not in a, a civil servant. So it's someone elected. So they'll always be looking to do favors to get reelected. Um, but this is dangerous because it means that they can, uh, they can get involved in stuff that really should not be, they shouldn't be involved in. Uh, could be marketing decisions, could be content, could be uh, refereeing, disciplinary, anything where you have te technical specialists who should be left to get on with it uh, rather than <clears throat> but political interference coming down from, from on high. Complex subjects, I agree, uh, it's not easy to, to conceptualize for a lot of people, but the fact is we don't have a healthy sector. We don't have a healthy industry. The regulators are not up to the job, basically. Uh, some exceptions, you know, I think FIFA have done a good job of improving how transfer disputes are dealt with over compared to the past. You know, they're dealt with a lot quicker now uh, than they were in the past, making sure players get paid, making sure clubs get paid if they're owed money on transfers, etc. This kind of 
stuff. That's working definitely better than in the past. There's a clearinghouse coming, which should help reduce some of the problems with transfers. There's a regulation of agents coming, which if it works well, should help again to, uh, to make things work better. So there's, there's good initiatives and let's say less positive developments as well at the same time. You're involved in the birth of financial fair play. Now that that's kind of been pushed aside now, now you've got new financial sustainability rules. It always strikes me with football is, and I, I'm entirely in favour of um, regulation uh, via financial means, but by tying rules to finances, you have to have a clear understanding of what the finances are. So no one's squirreling away money. N- nothing is um, hidden in any case. It strikes me as um, that's like playing whack-a-mole, isn't it? But, or, or is it? Is it? Is it easier than I imagine? No, it's definitely not easier. And I think the experience in any country where they've had a salary cap or some other form of financial regulation is that there are continuously issues with clubs trying to get around the rules uh, and disguising revenues in different ways. Uh, You know, this has been also perpetually in existence uh, in European football. So uh, we had clubs, before the Champions League was created, clubs had to pay a levy on their TV rights that they were selling themselves at the time and on their tickets. And federations had to do the same for their uh, national team qualifiers and friendlies. And they all used to cheat. They all used to under-report or they would come up with creative ways to to say that the revenues were lower than uh, they actually were in order to pay a lower tax or a lower levy. Uh, But uh, this allowed UEFA to centralise those rights because UEFA could say, well, is, is that all you're getting? Well, if we centralise them, we'll get 10 times as much. And that's how a lot of power over the years has gone to UEFA uh, by first of all centralising the club competitions, the, the rights to them. Because in 91, UEFA only sold the final. Whereas as of 93, UEFA was selling everything, all the group matches, uh, know 127 matches or whatever it was at the time so uh, there was a big centralization of power inside UEFA and the same process happened uh, later with the national teams as well and all the qualifiers and friendlies are now sold by UEFA acting in effect as an agency on behalf of all of the 55 national FAs around Europe um, which centralized a huge amount of power in, in UEFA but coming back to the the financial regulation. Yeah, so the, there are big problems in with policing financial regulations in countries with salary caps, and those countries tend to be uh, countries with where the sports are mainly played in that one single country. So let's say NFL, NBA, NHL, uh, MLB in the US, or it could be Australia, where Aussie rules, no one's playing elsewhere. So the market for playing talent is primarily national. There's one legal system. Okay, you have a federal structure, but generally there's one legal system, one language. Uh, It's much easier to police. So imagine even with all the problems you have just in one country, imagine what it's like trying to do it across 55 countries. We're all with different languages, different tax systems, different legal environments. It's it's very, very complex and very, very difficult, which is why financial fair play was very ambitious from the beginning. Uh, 
nevertheless, it did have a big positive impact um, because Chelsea and Manchester City, they converted a billion dollars of uh, debt into equity before the rules even came into force. So just simply thinking in advance, looking ahead. So the balance sheet of football got lighter and got, got uh, more healthy um, because of these rules. And it, they certainly helped in terms of getting players paid on time uh, and clubs getting paid their transfer debts as well. So there was a positive impact, but the fact remains that they are extremely difficult to police and you will always have clubs trying to get round the rules. We've seen this in big cases in recent years and I'm sure we will see it in future, regardless of whether they're called financial sustainability regulations or financial fair play. For as long as you have a defined revenue, as long as you have to define the revenue, then you're going to have these problems because what's in and what's out uh, in terms of the revenue. And um, so that's why I would always propose the solutions to be on the other side of the profit and loss account. So for an account, you know, the revenues and the costs. So rather than trying to police the revenues, focus on the cost side, which basically means players. Um, and it's easier to regulate um, the number of players in a club, for example, uh, than it is the, the, the revenues of a club. So I would propose a caps on the number of players, a number of contracts that clubs can have. So 25, for example, could be some more, could be less, plus a limit on the number of loans. FIFA are introducing this gradually, but it probably doesn't go far enough. Uh, and it doesn't apply to younger players, which is where the problem is. Because especially for competitive balance, uh, if you regulate the number of players, if you limit the number of players the big clubs can have, they can have as much money as they want. They can spend as much as they want, but they can only field 11 players. And if they can only have 25 professional contracts as well, it stops them from hoarding, stockpiling great young players from across the world in their reserve teams and youth teams and out on loan everywhere. Uh, and let those players play where they grow up or play in their, at least in their local country. And then if they're great players, they will move to the big clubs anyway. They'll just move when they're 22, 23, rather than when they're 16 or 17, as is happening now. Uh, so that is much easier to police because you have, it's very simple. Everyone can understand it. A fan can understand it. A journalist can understand it. It's not like you need a degree to understand the rules. <clears throat> uh, and they're also, it's also much less open to manipulation and uh, to, to fudges and legal cases that we've been seeing with uh, FFP and the other attempts at financial regulation in football. So that's, that would be my proposal. And I think that would have a much bigger positive impact than, uh, than any financial regulations. You can have financial regulations as well, of course. And I mean, the, the idea that of the current, the new idea of having a percentage of revenues spent capped to, that you can spend on players is fine. I mean, that's a financial rule. It's not gonna help competitive balance, but it's gonna help financial stability. Um, so it should help a bit if it's policed properly, because all these rules presuppose that they're gonna be implemented properly. And the recent implementation of FFP doesn't really give much comfort in that respect you also taught one of your recommendations in a sports business article um that i'll link to in the show notes was about coaches and players 
behavior, which is something that's very close to my heart, given that I run an under 15s team for my boy. And it's now entirely accepted that kicking the ball away is no issue, that no one's going to ever, uh, after an event, if you kick the ball away, no one is going to say a word, either your coaching team, your own coaching team, or the referee will not say anything, which is not acceptable. However, in my mind, it's not acceptable. However, you're talking about clarity of policing something. How do you have clear guidelines over coaches and player behavior i know you can write it down but there's still interpretation and also if they're going to try and get around financial issues they're definitely going to try and get around the blurred lines that exist over interpretation of behavior should you wish to sanction to sanction it mm. yeah you're right there will always be uh, it's like any laws or any regulations there's always going to be a margin for interpretation and there's going to be inconsistencies always because when you write a rule, you cannot envisage every possible situation where that rule needs to be uh, applied, which is why you give the referee or the judge or whoever it is who's applying the, the rule, you have to give them some leeway to interpret it. This inevitably leads to inconsistencies. But the question is, so there will always be inconsistencies. There will always be human error. Uh, but what we're, you know, we what we need to do is move the bar so further towards uh, a, an overall standard of good behavior that sets a good example for the kids that are watching those players around the world. And uh, it is possible to do it. It happened in the past. So there was a particularly violent on-field period of time when play was quite uh, harsh in the 1970s uh, with certain tactics coming from certain countries uh, and UEFA actually stopped it by, and as I say, you have, you have two tools in your armory as a, as a federation or a governing body. You've got disciplinary rules where you can sanction uh, and you've got refereeing where you can support the referees to implement the rules in a certain way. So if you do those coherently and consistently together with uh, media support, media campaign, um, you have a chance to move the bar. And I think that uh, it's not impossible. You know, it happened in other sports. So in rugby, for example, <clears throat> people were being poorly educated about the rules of the game because the TV commentators didn't understand. They were basically passing on uh, false information, uh, false interpretations of the rules of the game. And when the Federation went to the broadcaster and said, look, you've got to help us here. The broadcaster said, we're not here to educate. We're here to entertain. We want to make money. But to be fair to that broadcaster, Skyer, uh, they, they did listen and they did change and they did amend the way the game was presented, which led to a better understanding of the rules, a better education of players and obviously uh, everyone, uh, so better education of fans, everybody watching. Um, which leads to a better understanding of the sport, less interpretation, less harassment of referees because people understand the rules better. So I think it is possible. It's just it requires a bit of time and focus and it needs leadership time. Leadership in federations is often spent on, on money, chasing after money rather than on, on sport issues, which is what it should be spent on. Um, so that's why these kinds of issues get don't get as much focus as, as they should do. But I think it's very important because we kids grow up. You know, my son, I remember when he was young, 
throwing himself on the floor, rolling around, hold, holding his knee. He thought that was part of football. That was part of the game, you know. Uh, and that's where did he get that from? He got that from what he sees. You know, that's where we all learn from. We're educated by TV, by uh, well, streaming and <clears throat> media in general, what we read, what we hear, what we see. Uh, but the federations are not in charge of that. That's left to the broadcasters and the media companies and however they decide to present it. So, you know, I'll give you one example, great example from Germany many years ago. One year, about October time, October, November, everybody was saying, well, you know, the refereeing in the Bundesliga has really improved. It's, it's much better than last year. Like, well, what's changed? And then they looked at the referees and they were, it was exactly the same list of referees. They looked at the selection and the training and exactly the same. Nothing had changed at all. So why was the, why were the refereeing standards so, so improved? Well, the, the answer was they weren't. All that had happened is that the broadcaster, the main highlights broadcaster had changed from a commercial broadcaster that was focusing on referee errors to a public service broadcaster that had decided for their own commercial reasons or their own public service reasons not to focus on refereeing errors and to focus instead on other things like attacking play and so on. So the entire perception of the country about the standards of refereeing had changed based on an accident, a commercial accident, by switching from one broadcaster to the other. So if that can happen by accident, imagine what could happen if we tried proactively to, to use media to, to improve uh, behaviour uh, and respect and general standards. The other, I mean, there is a cultural issue where I remember Michel Platini, who's UEFA president, uh, you know, he, his view was that unfortunately cheating was part of the game. You know, everyone would, would try and do it. So, you know, it was just intrinsic. Uh, and many players, coaches, they do believe that. And there's a different concept of cheating. So, you know, in England, you can, or in, maybe it's the same in the US and uh, in MLS, but you can give a player a kick and that's not considered cheating. That's considered manly. And, you know, it's a contact sport. It's a man's game. Well, it's a woman's game as well, but the, the old fashioned mentality is that it's a man's game and you should be able to take the kick. And that's definitely not cheating. Whereas if you fall over from that kick and roll around a bit, that's cheating and that needs to be punished severely because that's simulation and diving and uh, that's unmanly and that's deceptive. And so these are cultural uh, issues where you, uh, yeah, things differ across the world. And But the rules of the game have to be the same across the world uh, because they are the same rules across the world for everybody. Uh, but you're going to have these differences in cultural implementation uh, based on the cultures where the game's being played. The digital transformation of the sports industry continues to accelerate. We've seen technology play a huge role both on and off the field to drive new business models and help us reimagine how sport is played and officiated. As the number of technology vendors in the market increases exponentially, Sports Tech Match saves rights owners time wasted speaking to the wrong vendors. The platform enables federations, leagues, clubs and other sports organisations to quickly and confidently identify and connect with the right solutions. Sports organisations at all levels can use Sports Tech Match's unique and anonymous request for information service to create and submit their requirements to a growing community of trusted vendors. Go to sportstechmatch.com for more.
taking a slightly left field, a left turn, I should say, but staying with culture, there was a quote that was in your sports business piece that kind of precipitated me contacting you really. And it talks about football being a highly complex cultural system connected over decades to dreams, identities, places, myths, regions, languages, religions, cultures, history, stuff that cannot be quantified through discounted cash flow or internal rate of return calculations. But that has an incredible value if attached to a product. That's actually what content strategy or my philosophy of content strategy is all about. The fact is that and that's not owned by TV companies, that's owned by fans that culture, that understanding, it's passed on from one fan to another yeah. via the songs, via uh, the, the way they act, via the, their perception. And I believe that TV companies reflect that. They don't control that. It's, it's owned by fans. It was very true with regard to the Super League. We saw that outpouring. You mm-hmm. talked about the fact that foreign owners, the new owners, and you were talking specifically, I think, about US owners in particular, need to be re-educated with regard to that quote you said, that the culture, the the myth, the tradition has a value, but you can't see it on a balance sheet, but it has a value. And we saw it actually in the lockdown when fans weren't in the ground and the product was terrible as far as Mm. I was concerned, because they are actually part of the product, but they're not part of, they're not considered part of the value and football needs to re-educate itself with regard to that. I would argue that's at the nub of the issue for the future of football is whether that education can get through. Otherwise, I see a gap developing between mm. fans and owners and the game itself. And mm-hmm. that will be to its yeah. detriment. Thoughts? Definitely. Uh, one of the big issues, I was speaking to a guy a couple of days ago who works with clubs all over Europe, and he said one of the biggest issues is educating the owners. And this is from the perspective of club staff. So that doesn't mean they're uneducated. Of course, they are. they're highly successful businessmen, most of them, uh, business people. Um, so it just means they, uh, they don't understand this specific sector, this specific industry, as much as they should if they're investing money in, uh, in clubs and in other content. And uh, they... So, I mean, it's their money. They can lose it. They can learn the hard way, as, you know, some clubs have been doing over recent years. So many clubs are connected to their communities and their regions, so people feel close in a way they don't to other products that they might consume. So, because it's part of their culture, it's what they grow up with. Their parents have told them the stories of what happened in the matches. You know, there's two generations of people now going to football that weren't alive when Hillsborough happened in 89, the big disaster, uh, or Heysel in 85, um, that don't understand that, but have heard the stories and have, have heard the stories of the positive stuff as well, the championship wins in the last minute. I was at Anfield in 89 when Arsenal won the league in the last minute. You lucky uh, so-and-so, I didn't know that. Anyway, go on. <laughs> so was my brother. Go on. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I think it comes back to another point that I make about content. I've had a theory for a long time. Uh, which is why live sport is different to all other forms of content. 30 years ago, a TV company would have said there's three things that, that sell. Sport, film, and sex. And those are the three things that we know will, will make us money. But there's a difference between sport and the other things, especially sport. So now sport and film, those are the things 
uh, that big pay TV platforms were built on. Uh, <clears throat> but sport is different. A film can be watched again and again. Music can be listened to again and again. The key difference is that the creative moment, the key creative moment happens live in sport, whereas it doesn't with film and with music and so on. I mean, that, there's a moment of brilliance where the composer or the band, the artist creates something and that then uh, can be listened to hundreds of times or the film, the brilliant film uh, can be watched hundreds of times, but you're not watching it live. It's not happening unfolding in front of your eyes. The, cre the actual event is being created in front of your eyes by the players, they are the artists. And that is something that is unique. I mean, there's only maybe a couple of other things like live comedy or live jazz where, where you can, people are creating something right in front of you. And that has a value, has an extremely high value in itself. Then the second thing is, if you are there, present, physically watching that happen, you are like, as I was at Anfield, you are one of 50,000 people in the world to have that experience that no one else has had. And that experience goes on in your head for the rest of your life. And you can, so that, those kinds of experiences are simply, you cannot buy them. I mean, it's gone. You are either at the game or you weren't, you can never buy it. So uh, you can never buy it again. Uh, but, <clears throat> so that's why people know live sport is so valuable. You know, because if you if you're there when it happens uh, or at the Super Bowl or wherever, you know, hundreds of millions watch on TV, but there's only 50, 70,000 there physically experiencing that, watching that live uh, thing that they will then have for the rest of their lives. That is more valuable than a brilliant film or a brilliant series that they can watch anytime they want. I think the other thing is, and this was I think it was very much a calculation when football made its big leap sorry my dog is barking in the background here um i'm gonna leave that in because um i can't cut it out and it's all over the answers anyway so let's just go ahead but one thing that was actually very very relevant in itv's calculation i know when they started paying big money for football in the uk was it cost a million pounds a million and a half pounds an hour to create mm -hmm. a, a, a costume drama and yet mm -hmm. with football and they were paying significantly less than that at the time the narrative was there so well while you've got film and music i get that they're spending a lot of time creating that narrative that 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 creative prep that creative process is is honed it's a craft whereas with something like football you because of the framework of the season and the relegation the promotion the derbies the uh, the, the fight for this, the fight for that, all those narratives are ingrained. All you have to do is create the circumstances and the games will create the narrative itself um, because, you know, we are in a situation where there's a, a fight for the title now. There's a fight for the relegation. There's a fight for the Champions League places. Um, there'll be a fight between, I don't know, Brighton and Crystal Palace about who finishes above each other in the league. These mini narratives Created through some of those myths and cultures that you've talked about, but it's there. So it's 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 an easier narrative creation process. You just set up the framework, and the game will look after itself. Yeah, that's true. And uh, I mean, you need good partners like broadcasters. They uh, media companies they will help you sell 
sell the story and do a much better job than you as a federation. I mean, like I always used to say to people around Asia, you know, when I was working, because I worked at AFC for four years based in Malaysia uh, on secondment from, from UEFA. Uh, I would say to them, so which is the best marketed league in the world? And they would always say, ah, oh, definitely the English Premier League. I'd say, right, okay, then how many people work in their marketing department? And what's that? What's their budget, do you think? And at the time, I think it was like three or four people, maybe, with maybe a million marketing budget. It's like, so are they marketing the Premier League around the world? Of course not. It's a broadcast. Sky's got billion, <laughs> he's got a billion pound marketing budget, hundreds of people doing tele sales, and they know consumers way better than Premier League or Fed, the FA or UEFA would ever be able to know them because it's their job. That's, you know, they, it's their job to know seven, eight million subscribers and know what they like and what they don't like. Uh, so you have, as, I said, as a federation, I would always work with partners and not try and get involved in, in, in the marketing side as much, defer to, let's say, experts in those areas. Same for... Uh, for other forms and focus on the football which is what you're supposed to be focusing on like as you say you create a great competition like the premier league is simple everybody understands it home and away three teams go down uh it's always been the same and it's it's everyone can understand it it's, there's enough jeopardy in there there's enough places the european places means there are enough interesting matches to the end of the season to have a great story and it's the same in all the national championships i mean in the us it's different so you have to you've got this problem of tanking and teams losing matches because there is no merit-based pyramid where you can rise based on your talent and on your hard work uh, this is a big i mean this is a holy grail really for, for for us sports you know of all countries in the world you'd say the us is the one most suited to the european system of a pyramid where you can start at the bottom you with a little bit of money hard work talent and, and move up based on your own merits, work your way up the system. You know, it's the American dream. Uh, and I think if you had a thousand entrepreneurs doing that with football clubs across the US, you'd have the most vibrant, uh, intensely competitive football soccer pyramid probably anywhere in the world. Uh, if people knew they could go up based on hard work, talent, and a small amount of investment. Because at the moment, if you want to get in to one of the pro leagues you need to pay whatever the price is so it could be 400 million dollars for an mls franchise or two or three billion for an nba franchise whatever the prices may be but uh why is she, that's just one price point why can't you enter if you've only got 10 million to invest or 100 million to invest you that's what you can do in european football you enter at the point that you where you can afford and then try and work your way up from there I was going to talk about younger audiences, though, because is there a different dynamic with them? I mean, you know, you were anti-Super League. The vast majority of football was anti-Super League. Um, however, from my reading, the younger audiences polled were relatively much less anti the European Super League. I think partly because their connection to those uh, myths, uh, dreams, identities may be a little less strong. Also, they're brought up a different way. You know, they're playing FIFA, which is, a, you know, gaming is a significant um, 
cultural device these days. And they're playing Real Madrid versus Liverpool and Arsenal versus Barcelona and Juventus. That's what they want to play. So has football got a challenge to retain that? Because a younger audience might say, well, why do we not want to see the best versus the best four times a year rather than Arsenal uh-huh. versus Crystal Palace? No, you're right. They, that's that's normal and in a, in a way. Same for older people as well. They want to watch great, great matches, the best against the best as well. Uh, but who is the best? How do you define what the best is? So are you the best because, I mean, are Tottenham the best? No, that's a clear answer so, for me on that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they've done a great job. I mean, they've run the club really well. They've punched above their weight for many years. That I think the owners have done a great job there uh, to to raise their level uh, over over many years, despite the lack of trophies. But what is the best? The best is if you're watching Juventus against Real Madrid, it has more value if Juventus has finished above Atalanta the previous season to get there because it makes it more legitimate. It makes it, they've actually earned it. Uh, Again, this is a lived experience. People know this from their life. They know that some people buy their way to things and other people work their way to things. And the people that work their way to things, they get more respect. And uh, it's most people's experience because there's only a small group of people that can actually buy their way to, to whatever they want. And this is, so people intrinsically understand that if you you're the best because that's the whole point of sport as well. You know, you've got a set of rules. The match is happening on the pitch. You can be the judge. There's no stuff going on behind the scenes. It's there on the pitch being watched by hundreds of millions of people around the world. Right? You can't do any. Uh, you can't manipulate behind the scenes to get a certain goal or a certain because the player's going to score the goal or not. Uh, so it's. Uh, people understand that that the uh, that it's merit based, and I think so. You have the legitimacy if you win uh, a competition, it has way more value if you've won it and you've earned the right to be in that competition in the first place. And I think younger audiences, I don't think, are that much different to older audiences. Uh, I think there's less connection to uh, locality, so people probably also with uh, with the internet. You know, people are less connected to where they grew up compared to the past, where they would have had a closer attachment to their city or their town or their village or the, the, the part of the city or the town they live in. Um, so that is going to tend towards bigger clubs in the rest of the country or in the rest of the continent or the world. And we saw this when we were growing up. There was, you know, at my school, there was a few Liverpool fans uh, in London. Why? Because they were successful, that's why. They're, so, and there's always so there's always going to be an element of that. Yes, it probably will get bigger that element as time goes on because there are less attachments to roots uh, and so on. But I don't think fundamentally the core uh, outlook will change. Um, but yeah, we'd, I'd be interested to see the the research. We've heard a lot from the Super League about audiences, about Asian audiences, and. So on. I mean, I, I lived and worked in, in football in Asia and I'm sceptical about some of their conclusions uh, from at least from what I read. And I would probably be equally sceptical about some giant sea change in the way the younger generation will appreciate live sport compared to our generation. 
What about the concept of scarcity? Obviously, we've mm. there's been talk about uh, biannual World Cups, okay, uh, which which people think might dilute the value of them. But even if you, we, we've talked about US sport, and you've got the obvious example of NFL versus baseball, you know, NFL will be I don't know twenty five mm. se- games a season if, to get to the Super Bowl, and baseball is what one hundred and forty just in the regular season. So mm. they're both considered valuable. Obviously, NFL is considered much more valuable and. Baseball is seen to be declining, an older sport. But is that related to scarcity? Should we value scarcity these days? Or is it uh, something that we are going to see crushed under the wheels of the chase for money? (laughs) I think football is, is different to US sports because there's no strong central regulation. It's much more fragmented. Whereas in US sports, you have a commissioner who can manage things in a better way, like let's say in a more coherent way. Uh, uh, hats off to those big, the major leagues, because to keep, <laughs> to, to or certainly like NFL, you know, it'd be the easiest thing in the world to expand, play more matches, make more money. Uh, but, but they don't. And I think, you need to be in a really strong position to do that. Uh, and it's the same way the Champions League in football has to some degree done the same thing. You know, they went to two group stages for four years from 99, uh, which meant more matches, but actually went back because even the big clubs who had asked for that change realized that it wasn't making that much more money. The matches were boring and it was probably better to go back to less, less is more, which was one of the original slogans of the Champions League, you know, four main sponsors, only four. But what about all those categories that you could sell that you haven't sold? No, no, less is more. You know, we can charge them more as a premium because of exclusivity, et cetera. I mean, those sort of things you can only do with the real blue chip sports uh, competitions. Um, but nevertheless, I think the problem, so in football, you have a fragmented culture. Again, it comes back to the fact that regulators are also organizing competitions. So they will, if you have, if you're in charge of the calendar and you've got your own competitions, well, you might say we want more space in the calendar for our own competitions. It's exactly what's happened in cricket with the introduction of the 100, where you've got a, re- a regulator organizing the competition and they've basically put their new tournament with new teams, mm-hmm. with new franchises slap in the middle of August, which is the best position. And listen, I've, r- I've written a book about how much that upsets me, but it's exactly what's happened. Exactly what's happened. Vested interests. Yeah. And there, which is not necessarily in the overall interest of the sport. It might be, it might not be, but uh, the fact is you have a conflict of interest there, which is obvious. And there's been, there's been big court cases in the European Union about this, like the International Skating Union. There was a recent big judgment on this where the Federation lost because it was proved that they had, uh, a, uh, they were being unreasonable with regards to alternative competition organisers. Uh, so, yeah, I think scarcity, I mean, personally, as a fan, I would like Premier League to be 18 clubs as it was always meant to be. That's how it was agreed in the beginning with the FA, the English Football Association, but uh, the FA is weak, so they never implement, they never, let's say, force that. that. So I think that would improve the quality of the Premier League. It would mean less matches, but in any case, not all the matches are shown anyway. 
at least within England or within the UK, uh, because they, unlike all the other top leagues in the UK, there's only about half the matches which you can watch live on, on broadcast. So, uh, so I think that, I mean, I would go, yeah, scarcity for sure. But then it's not, players are evolving, you know, players can do more than they could in the past. You watch a game from 40, 50 years ago, uh, is much slower than the game today because physically, in terms of nutrition, medical support, all kinds of support, the players are capable of playing more, uh, and they they and they do they do it. Um, squads are bigger. Again, we discussed that earlier, um, which allows more rotation of players and so on. So uh, it's tempting for competition organisers to squeeze more matches in to make more money. Uh, wherever there's a little gap in the calendar it'll be a match or a little tournament put in there. That's uh, why it's important that you have basic standards for players. Like I worked on a standard player contract for European players uh, where players have to have four weeks holiday every year. You know, you, that's their uh, minimum requirement of which two must be consecutive. Uh, so th those kind of basic things are important because otherwise if they're not there, uh, it was tempting for competition organisers, tempting for the players themselves and their agents to play more matches, get more money as well. But they also need their health to be protected. How should sport present itself in terms of its content? This is sports content strategy. So, you know, what what content should be front and centre? You made a very interesting point about the perception of refereeing was changed via the broadcasters. So how you, you also talked about the fact that the, the broadcasters are probably left better to their own devices to help grow the sport. But also that can be, that lead, can lead to sensationalism. That can lead yeah. to uh, narratives that the sport wouldn't necessarily want to portray front and center. So uh, what's the middle ground here? What's the positive middle ground between content creators and what, and what the sport like football wants? Well, I think, federations need to be more proactive on that rather than simply saying right who's offering the most money right we'll take that um, instead of doing that it should be more proactive and going to the broadcasters and saying look what we need to do we've got a problem which is numbers of people playing this sport are declining in a certain country or whatever we want to get more kids playing football how can you help us do that uh, so it comes back to another idea you know i was thinking why are big sports bodies going to, say, China, go to talk to Alibaba or Tencent, try and get, or it could be to Silicon Valley, to, to the big techs, uh, big tech companies, try and get, squeeze some sponsorship money out of them. Microsoft, well, it's not Silicon Valley, but Microsoft, they don't want to sponsor sports bodies because they're not, it's just not part of their marketing strategy, but they want to cooperate with them. They want to work with them. Um, so, my point is, does it make sense if you go to China and try and sell a sponsorship for $20 million or 50 million or 100 million, whatever it is, does it make sense to get that money? What are you going to do with that money when you get it? Or does it make more sense to go to them and say, look, you've got half a billion people using your apps daily. They're not interested in football. We want to get them interested in football. We'll give you the sponsorship, knockdown price, but work with us to communicate with the people. And it's the same in Silicon Valley. Facebook are affecting who wins general elections 
what leads Facebook data is. Uh, if they can do that, surely they can help us to get more people interested in football around the world. Two billion Facebook accounts. You know, surely we can. Uh, they can help. Uh, we working with us sports federations to develop the sport around the world, because in the end, you know, the money football has a luxury of too much money at the top end. Uh, in in a way, you, you see the amount of money that's wasted uh, by at the very top. It's it's quite incredible. Therefore, more money is not the answer. <laughs> you know, we we need to work with these companies with their expertise, the expertise they have and the knowledge they have and the skills they have. Um, and you put those at the disposal of sport to develop the sport. That's that's my general approach. Uh, and I base that on what I said before, which is that broadcasters are the ones that have promoted and developed the sport around the world for their own reasons, you know, commercial reasons, fine. We should ride that and we should work with them to make sure that it's developed in the way we want. In other words, with respect for referees, with attacking, with respect for attacking football, with respect for women and the fact that football is a game that girls should play, not just boys. Um, and all of these messages should be coming through our commercial partners, not just the broadcasters, also the sponsors and the other commercial partners, so that we can uh, we can basically improve the sport, because that, at the end of the day, is our job as a sports federation. Last one. Alex Phillips is three things to cure football. Go, go, go. One, two, three. <laughs> right on the spot. <laughs> or at least a couple. Well, I would say the first one is to reform the, the federations, as I as outlined before, break them up into separate bodies, each one with their own task that they can work on uh, individually without getting muddied up with the other, muddled up with the other functions. That should also be done in conjunction with uh, an, an international integrity agency government sport together maybe with stakeholders as well we've got one for doping wada so why haven't we got one for match fixing and for governance issues uh don't answer that question but that's part of the solution as well so that's the first thing i would say is to because once you set if you have the right structures you things naturally improve from that and those structures should also encourage let's say more football people to get involved and this particularly applies in in the UK and in fact in anglophone countries generally uh, so I did an analysis of the, all the directors of Premier League clubs say there's a hundred five on average per club how many of them ever played football coached football or did anything I mean football is a core business of a football club Yet the directors are bankers, lawyers, marketeers. Uh, so you need bankers and lawyers and marketeers, but you also need people who actually understand the business you are actually in, which is football. And it's running football clubs, it's recruiting players, building teams, winning matches, winning competitions. And there, especially in England, and it's the same in the FA, you've got 12, 13 people on the board. None of them have played football. Well, one of them is, I think, was coach of Bognor Regis. It's, it's unsurprising that the 
if the regulatory body then focuses on money and not on football. So selling tickets for Wembley, hosting big events, that kind of stuff, rather than, let's say, what should be its core business. But anyway, so that the second thing is I would really like to find a way, and I don't have the answer for how to do this specifically, to get more people who care about football into positions of power in football. Because that's also one of the major problems you've got in, uh, in football at the moment is that too many of the decision makers are not interested in football. Simple fact. And uh, if you did have people that were more interested, then it would lead to better decisions. It's not a panacea. You know, we had Michel Platini as president of UEFA. He's a former legendary player. And that, didn't, that doesn't stop problems happening. But all things being equal, uh, it's become too unbalanced away from, let's say, people with football backgrounds and who genuinely love the sport. So the second thing would be to find a way to get more football people involved in football and in positions of power in football. Uh, and then again, like the structures, better decisions will flow naturally from that. They will be more inclined to protect the game, maybe go for a bit more scarcity, less, uh, less is more. Uh, focus a bit more on the refereeing, on the respect, on the playing standards, and things like that that are have been slightly neglected, I would say, to uh, because of the takeover of, of marketeers and lawyers of football and other sports. You saw this in cricket, you know, the, uh, that that World Cup in the West Indies where you know no one was allowed to to take anything into the ground because it might conflict with the sponsor you know where you basically uh, all all fun was killed and you have this ridiculous kind of overkill on the side of uh of marketeers and lawyers where yeah, balance needs to be struck so that's the second thing the third thing I have to keep in reserve for uh for a future podcast <laughs> Well, you did very well because I've put you on the spot at the end. But Alex Phillips, thank you very much. You're welcome. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com.